This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Hydroflask, makers of the new Trail Series bottle, which lets you go farther with less weight. My name is John Cupid. I'm Director of Design at Hydroflask. John led one of the teams designing the Trail Series. Step one in their process was talking to customers to see what they wanted in a new bottle made specifically for hiking and backcountry adventures. You know, the first thing that we do with every project is we, we try to better understand our users. Hydroflask is known for their stainless steel bottles that keep liquids cold for up to 24 hours or hot for 12 hours. They're also extremely durable. Customers told John and his team that they love those features, but also that there was one thing they'd like to see improved, if possible. During uh, the conversations with them, what we learned was that they would like a lighter product. Then there was the improvement that people didn't realize they needed. We were watching people use our inline bottles out on the trail. You know, their hands are slippery from sweat. Uh, they're, sometimes they're holding the bottles along the body rather than the carry strap just to have a different hand position. And um, it's something we noticed. John and his team took all that back into the lab and came up with the Trail Series bottle, the lightest weight vacuum insulated bottle on the market full 25% lighter than Hydroflask's previous wide mouth bottles. It's made from a thinner metal, but it's just as strong. The bottle is also narrower, so it's easier to hold in your hand and fits better in your pack. On the cap is a rubber handle with a flexible strap. We perforated the straps, gave us a couple of additional benefits, but uh, one was lighter weight and uh, it just an added level of performance there. We designed it basically so our fans could do more and go longer with less weight. The Hydroflask Trail Series bottle is available in 24 and 32 ounce sizes in a variety of colors. It weighs less so you can do more. Learn additional details and purchase yours at hydroflask.com slash trail series. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. If you wanted to save the planet right now, what would you do? Like if you had enormous resources and could take one action, what would it be? Invest billions in renewable energy? Galvanize a campaign to get people to eat more plants and less animals? Pour everything you've got into education? Or maybe, maybe you'd start a podcast. I perhaps have an outsized faith in the power of podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) That's Alex Bloomberg being very forthcoming in a trailer for a brand new show called How to Save a Planet. If you don't recognize his name, maybe you recognize his voice. I was talking with a friend of mine who was telling me about her friend who'd been selected to be a Nielsen family. And I said to her, isn't it weird that they're all named Nielsen? Alex is a big, big figure in the audio world. He was a longtime producer for This American Life, creating some of that iconic show's most popular episodes. And he also co-hosted Planet Money, for National Public Radio. <laughs> but first, our planet money indicator. It is 31,000. Well, recently, he co-founded a podcast company called Gimlet. I'm Alex Bloomberg, and you're listening to Startup, the podcast miniseries documenting the launching of my podcast company. Which was sold to Spotify last year for a reported $230 million. Which brings us back to saving the planet. So he sold his company, he bought a Tesla, and decided that he wanted to do a podcast on climate. That's Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, a marine biologist and policy expert. 
and Alex's co-host on How to Save a Planet, which launches on Spotify and other podcast platforms tomorrow, August 20th. As Ayana tells it, she was sitting next to Alex at a dinner party last year when he told her his plans for a climate change podcast. I was just like, okay, but like, who are you to host that show? Like, do you know anything about this? Do you know the science? Um, have you considered co-hosting this with a scientist? And he was like, yeah, totally. I, I'm thinking about a co-host and yeah, someone with some scientific expertise would be great. And I was like, have you thought about, you know, having a woman as a co-host? Because like just, you know, white men leading the narrative on climate change is sort of how we got into this mess. Um, and he was like, yes, that sounds good. And I was like, maybe a person of color. So you could have some insights into the communities that are being most affected and the people we need to be bringing into this work. And he was like, yes, that too, super important. And I was like, two glasses of wine to dinner. I was like, oh, you should just pick me. (laughs) I should be your co-host. And he was kind of like, uh, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, like every origin story, uh, there's a hint of truth. The only thing I would take issue with is the origin of my interest in doing a climate podcast. It was not that we sold the company and then I bought a Tesla and then I was like, I want to do a climate podcast as some sort of like dilettante, nouveau rich douchebag. It's been something that has been on my mind for a long time. Fair enough. But still, Alex did need a co-host and he was very lucky to land Diana. She seems to be one of the busiest scientists alive. She runs a conservation consulting firm as well as a think tank focused on the future of coastal cities. She was an advisor to Elizabeth Warren's campaign, and she's currently editing an anthology of essays by women climate leaders, and also writing her own book on solutions to climate change. Ayana has emerged as a uniquely powerful voice in the environmental movement due to her collaborative approach to problem solving and her talent for explaining the intersections of climate change and racial and social justice. These are critical pieces of the puzzle that we all need to comprehend if we're going to make any progress on, well, saving the planet. To understand how Ayana got to this point, we need to start with that time she broke out into hives when she was five years old. She was on a family vacation in Florida in the mid-1980s, sitting on the back of a glass-bottom boat, feeding popcorn to fish at a coral reef. Because feeding junk food to wildlife was considered okay back then. So we were feeding the fish cheese popcorn, like all the kids on the boat, like off the back deck. And I'm really allergic to milk. And so I was like armpit deep in a massive bag of cheese popcorn before my mom caught me. And I was just covered in hives. And so she like sort of rinsed my arm off and took me, you know, off the back deck into the cabin where there was this glass bottom while everyone else was outside feeding the fish. And so it was like I had this private view to this underwater magical world. For Ayana, it was love at first sight. And I went to the aquarium and got to hold a sea urchin in my hand and feel its hundreds of tube feet crawling across my palm. And I was just like, I'm hooked. What is this called? Like, this is my job. (laughs) Eventually, it would be. But the journey to becoming a marine biologist was a long one for a middle-class biracial kid growing up in Brooklyn, New York. As a child, Ayana had most of her nature experiences in her backyard. I was always trying to find ways to be outside and enjoy 
the outdoors. And our backyard was a super special place for me. We grew vegetables and we had an herb garden. I had this totally awesome jungle gym and I would just, you know, dig up my dad's tulip bulbs and he would be really bummed. And I would just have been looking for worms and was into making mud pies. And I spent a ton of time in my childhood sort of running through the sprinklers in the backyard. From an early age, Ayana developed a sophisticated understanding of how humans relate to the environment around them and also how they can change it. Much of this came from the fact that her Jamaican-born father was an architect and an artist who kept a pottery studio in the basement of their brownstone. So there was always this sense of design and understanding how the buildings and objects that we live in and around and with are really important and they are decisions that are made, how we construct our world. Of course, we don't always make the best construction choices, which is something else that Ayana learned early on. There's a great picture of me as a kid, like with ears of corn coming out of like all of my pockets, wearing overalls in my backyard in Brooklyn, like a tiny farmer. But we actually had to stop growing food because our neighbors started using all these super harsh pesticides to control weeds in their garden because they didn't want to weed their tiny patch of land. And they also didn't grow anything in its place. They just wanted it dead and empty. And so that was, you know, my first exposure to the ways in which we try to beat nature into submission in some weird form that it doesn't want to be in. Ayana's mother taught high school English. She pushed her students to read critically and to love books. She was the same way with her daughter. When Ayana was 12, she had to read a biography for her science class. Her mom handed her a biography of Rachel Carson, the legendary marine biologist and conservationist. I was just completely in awe of her. As a young person, reading about her and the huge impact that she made on the world um, was super inspiring because until then I had only really heard about civil rights leaders. And so when I was five and decided to become a marine biologist, the next thing I wanted to be when I was 10 was the lawyer that got the next Martin Luther King out of jail. And I watched the Eyes on the Prize documentary series when I was too young to handle it probably. And I was terrified that the Ku Klux Klan was going to throw a Molotov cocktail in my window and steal me in the night when my parents couldn't protect me because I was a mutt, because I was biracial. And so the people who fought against that were the heroes. And so to then be able to put someone like Rachel Carson in the same category was, I think, a really big step for me. Ayanna went to college at Harvard, where she majored in environmental science and public policy. After graduating, she earned her PhD in sustainable coral reef management at the University of California at San Diego Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She began her fieldwork in 2007 in the Caribbean nations of Curacao and Bonaire, where she redesigned fish traps to reduce bycatch. Hundreds of scuba dives later, I was able to prove that if you put this escape slot, this narrow vertical rectangular hole in this corner of a fish trap, the 80% of the bycatch can escape. It was a simple and cheap solution that had a strong conservation impact without hurting fishermen's income. And so that was very formative because it showed me 
that it's not about fancy technology. There are these really valuable low-tech solutions. And if you design your research to fill a need that is expressed by the local government and you work with fishermen, that you can actually be useful. And I didn't want to just write papers that no one was going to read and wouldn't ever result in any action. It was that desire for action that caused Ayana to largely abandon the underwater data aspects of her research and instead focus her energies on connecting with the people who had the most at stake in how coral reefs are managed. What I realized is that I really needed to just be talking to fishermen. I needed to talk to the people who had for generations been on the water, under the water, seeing what's changed and whose livelihoods depended on getting management right. And so I interviewed over 400 fishermen and scuba divers, and it was fascinating. It was this incredible window into why people make the decisions that they do. She asked them a very long list of questions, but one proved to be especially revealing. If you could write the rules to manage fishing in the ocean, what would they be? And that was a question that a lot of people were just so surprised to be asked. And they often had really great ideas and insights based on just a really intimate knowledge of the problems that the ocean was facing. So the hundreds of hours that I spent sort of interrupting dominoes games and hanging out at the docks and in dive shops really changed the way that I see the world. That new perspective would guide her professional career. At the Waite Institute, a nonprofit focused on restoring fish populations, she launched an initiative that helped the citizens of Barbuda to craft their own marine regulations. The result was one of the most progressive and comprehensive ocean management policies in the region. Still, when Ayana moved back to Brooklyn in 2016, she struggled to figure out how she could have the greatest impact on ocean conservation. I made a spreadsheet of everyone I respected in ocean conservation, and I set up meetings with all of them and just asked them, if you could have any job in ocean conservation or work on any project, what would it be? And I got basically no good answers. All those meetings did, however, result in Ayana getting a number of consulting gigs. She worked with Greenpeace, EX Prize, and World Wildlife Fund. She was getting so many offers that she couldn't handle all the work herself. And she didn't want to. And so I called up a dozen of the coolest people I know who were working independently on ocean conservation and said, hey, if I form some sort of collective where we can work on projects together, would you be down? And everyone said yes. That's how the Ocean Collective was born. Ayana envisioned it as a vehicle to provide targeted support for conservation groups that are doing things differently and in a way that is careful about the justice implications of their work. Among their early projects was a program for the Bezos Family Foundation that awarded grants to small environmental organizations involved in community engagement. Ayana's instinct to collaborate surfaced again last year after she read the text of the Green New Deal, the resolution introduced in Congress by Democrats that calls on the federal government to combat climate change in a number of ways. She was impressed by what she read, but also struck by a major shortcoming. As I was reading through this, I was like, wow, they really went for it. Like, they're really connecting a lot of dots here. I don't know if people are going to go for this. And then I got for pay to page 10, and that was the first time I saw anything about the ocean. And it just listed the ocean 
in a, you know, a string of like things we should protect include kind of a list. And I just was like, what, this is all we get. And it just made me think people really don't look to the ocean. When we think about climate solutions, we think about the ocean as a victim of climate change, ocean heating up and acidifying and, We think about overfishing and pollution, but we don't think about all the ways in which the ocean can and must be a part of our climate solutions. Her reaction was to work with Chad Nelson, the CEO of Surfrider, the largest grassroots ocean conservation group in the world, and Bren Smith, co-founder of the regenerative ocean farming organization Greenwave, to co-author an opinion piece for the environmental outlet Grist. Their article called out what they called the big blue gap in the Green New Deal. Soon after, Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign tapped Ayana as a consultant and made her the star of a campaign video. Warren has really elevated climate policy to a central role in the debates and in the primaries. We're also seeing this upsurgence of climate activism around the country with the youth. Ayana entered 2020 with a full head of steam. She started off by co-founding Urban Ocean Lab a think tank that cultivates policies that help coastal cities adapt to the threats of rising sea levels and more powerful storms. She started working on how to save a planet and also on her book projects. When COVID-19 hit in March, it didn't slow her down at all. It just made everything more complicated. And then George Floyd was killed, spurring a nationwide uprising in the face of ongoing police violence against black Americans. For the first time in her career, Ayanna's work came to a standstill. I was just so heartbroken watching all these murders and just wondering what I could contribute to that moment. And the thing I decided that might be helpful was helping people connect the dots between environmental work, climate work, and the need for racial justice. She began writing an op-ed for the Washington Post that would go viral. I drafted that op-ed to share my personal experiences over the course of those weeks and then to basically frame it as a letter to white environmentalists to say, here's why you need to care about racial justice and be part of dismantling white supremacy because we simply cannot successfully address the climate crisis without people of color as a part of that work and as a part of that solution. As long as all of these violent structures of oppression exist, people of color cannot fully do the work. And I sort of laid out all of the ways in which my work had been derailed over those weeks, all of the things that you're told you're supposed to do to contribute to be a good environmentalist, writing the policy memos to Congress on wind energy and advising Hollywood film on ocean conservation messaging and the climate science they're including and fundraising for an award for women of color climate leaders and work on Urban Ocean Lab. Like none of that happened. I was just completely consumed with the news and taking care of my people and checking in and helping, you know, organize things and, and processing what this meant for my work. And so I wrote that op-ed out of fury and grief 
to try to say, like, I know white environmentalists, I know you just want to ignore racism because our environmental challenges are already massive. And I too wish we could ignore it. But I am proof that you can't ignore it and still get this work done. And we need everybody as a part of this fight. We'll be right back. Earlier, we heard from John Cupid, head of design at Hydroflask, about how the all-new lightweight Trail Series bottle lets you go further. A lighter bottle was what Hydroflask users said they wanted. But as John tells it, he wasn't sure he could deliver. I have to be proud of the fact that we could reduce the weight. That was a challenge that we didn't know we could solve at the beginning. Hydroflask engineers tested numerous blends of professional-grade stainless steel until they found a unique mix that allowed for the thinnest possible walls of a bottle without compromising its durability or temperature retention. You know, it was a back and forth of building lots of prototypes, testing in the lab, testing out in the trail, uh, in the real world, you know, taking them on hikes, seeing how they perform there. And we did lots of drop tests. We did, did lots of impact tests to make sure the, uh, the durability was what our customers expected. Along the way, they looked for every possible way to save weight, which is why Hydroflask completely re-engineered the wide-mouthed lid, all the way down to the lugs. The lid construction itself, you know, we have a hollow surface in the top part of the lid that made the lid more compact. That reduced weight. We perforated the straps, the lugs. We changed out the material from stainless steel to aluminum and then hollowed them out, cored them out. All of those things that we looked at helped in reducing the weight by about 25%. The Hydroflask Trail Series bottle weighs less, so you can do more. Learn additional details and purchase yours at hydroflask.com slash trail series. Ayana's op-ed in the Washington Post was everywhere, and it made her a sought-after speaker. In the weeks after it was published, she hosted Instagram Live discussions about environmental and racial justice with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and former Secretary of State John Kerry. Ayana had written something deeply personal, but it served as a call to action for white environmentalists, a group of people who are very engaged in the state of the world but who were largely staying on the sidelines of an enormous social movement because they didn't understand how it related to them. People who, you know, think of themselves as good people, people working to save the planet, just really weren't engaging in the movement for Black Lives. It was a separate issue to them. They weren't seeing the ways these things were intertwined. But there was another reason that so many organizations and media outlets jumped at the chance to promote Ayana's message. Environmentalists were grasping for straws of like content they could share that connected their work to Black Lives Matter because they were unprepared. There are a few major environmental groups that really have been focused on climate justice and have been thoughtful on this intersection and their communications were pretty fluid. And then there were others who were like, oh my gosh, what do I share? Who's like a reputable person? Like who can talk about this? Like who can we have on our podcast? Like who can we interview? And there was this scramble for like what we can share to prove that we care. And so I think my op-ed also got caught up in this moment where people were like, oh, we're supposed to be amplifying black voices. Oh wait, here's this op-ed. Okay, great. It doesn't make us feel too bad. It tells us that we're welcome and our help is needed. Got it. And that racism is like distracting people from doing the work that seems doing. That seems like a not so scary thing to say. Okay, we'll share this. (laughs) 
the widespread attention Ayanna received elevated her to a new level of intellectual leadership in the environmental movement. She had starkly revealed the moral link between the actions we need to take to create a healthier planet and those we need to take to bring about racial justice. It's not surprising that Ayana is the one to make this connection. She was, after all, that little girl who dreamed of being Rachel Carson and the lawyer for the next Martin Luther King Jr. And if you go a bit deeper into her story, you see how those dreams intersect. Remember that trip she took to Florida when she was five and fell in love with coral reefs and decided she wanted to be a marine biologist? She also learned to swim on that trip in a hotel pool. It was a joyous experience, but decades later, she would learn that it was tainted by racism. So my dad's black and my mom's white, and and sort of it, it had been unremarkable when I was down there with my mom. And, and when my dad showed up, none of the white people would get in the pool. They wouldn't let their kids in the pool because he had polluted the entire thing because his skin had more melanin in it, which I would not have understood at the time. And my parents didn't tell me. To me, it just meant like I can do all the cannonballs I want and I don't have to like worry about splashing people. <laughs> so there's this like weird silver lining. Um, and my dad later told me that when he learned to swim and dive for coins, it was in Kingston Harbor where the tourists would throw coins off the cruise ships for the little black kids to go dive for as their form of entertainment. And, and so him teaching me to dive in that way was bringing back those memories for him. Today, persistent racism undercuts efforts at combating climate change. As Ayanna points out, studies have shown that people of color are more worried about the impacts of climate change than white communities. And yet, their voices are often ignored. And the number that I just can't get out of my head is 23 million. That is the number of black people in America who are already deeply concerned about climate change. So how stupid is it to not create a movement and a society that welcomes all of those people into this work that desperately needs all hands on deck? Like, do we want to win or not? Because if we want to win, we need all the people who already care working on this as much as they can. The pushback that I get to talking about race and the intersections with climate. You know, climate's already complicated enough as it is. Um, We don't want to scare people away by talking about racial justice. I'm like, you're worried more about scaring away racists than about welcoming people of color who already care into this movement. And honestly, I want to see the Venn diagram between racists and climate deniers, which would probably further cement the fact that we should stop worrying about scaring away racists from climate work. (laughs) Because... You know, there's some portion of them that are never going to be into it. If you talk to Ayana's collaborators, one of the things they'll tell you they appreciate most about her is her directness. Ayana is fiercely loyal, and she is willing to speak truth in situations where others would squirm away from it or just wouldn't deliver it with the same clarity. That's Catherine Wilkinson, the editor-in-chief at Project Drawdown a group focused on climate solutions. She spoke to me during a thunderstorm. Catherine and Ayanna recently partnered on a project that takes on their shared frustration for the way that women have been marginalized in climate work. It's an anthology of essays by 40 women climate leaders called All We Can Save. They came up with the idea while at a conference in Colorado last year when they were feeling pissed off. 
in the midst of this conference, we just were sort of grappling again with like, God, there are so many brilliant women with big, bold ideas who don't get the mic, who don't get sufficient resources. Too much of their great work is a side hustle or is kind of happening in workarounds of existing structures. And and we went on what Ayana has come to call a rage hike. And that's really where we sketched out the idea for this book. The contributors to All We Can Save include the kinds of scientists, lawyers, and policy experts you might expect, but also people you wouldn't. Farmers, artists, designers, and poets. In addition to the book, Ayana and Catherine are creating a nonprofit that will provide significant funding to women climate leaders. We cannot save the planet as our side hustle. Like We have to unleash our full might on this problem, and the people doing the most important work need to be supported. It's hard to argue with that, but it's a point that got me wondering. Is Ayana doing so much that she risks making climate change her side hustle? In particular, why did she want to be the host of a weekly podcast? We're doing this every week from now until, as I like to joke with Ayana, the job is done. And so if it works and it's like successful, this is like a multi-year commitment. Of all the ways that she could apply her energy and intellect, is this really the best choice? I called her back to ask. Is this podcast, How to Save a Planet, like getting in the way of you actually saving the planet? <laughs> you know, like I how do you that. still have... Yeah, how do you still have time to do the kind of work that leads to to the action that you've always been focused on for a long time when you're doing all the things it takes to to record a, you know, a regular show because that, you know, honestly, I know it's a lot of work. Yeah, well, I guess the first thing I would say is let's lower the bar. I am not personally going to save the planet. So this is not getting in the way from any sort of savior thing that I would alone be doing. And instead, it's part of this broader effort to think about what we collectively can do together. If we can push legislators and companies and individuals to do better, then it's absolutely worth the effort, And especially because of what I think we really need right now is a cultural shift. We need to shift the status quo of how we live on this planet, how we interact with each other when it comes to the climate. Um, and culture shift happens through media and art. So, yeah, this was not something I ever thought I would end up doing, um, but it seems like it's worth a shot. It's not the podcast that saves the planet, right? It's opening up a line between people and what's possible. And it's part of what I think I can contribute to the question of what does the future look like if we get it right? Because that's the question that people don't know the answer to. We can't see it. And so it's really hard for people to work towards something that they don't even know what it is or what it looks like. We have this really strong vision of what the apocalypse looked like, right? The, the fire and brimstone and all of that. But we don't actually have that many positive visions of the future that are leading us to run towards it. Instead, we're kind of like sauntering away from the apocalypse, which is, which is not going to cut it at this point. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Alex Bloomberg launch How to Save the Planet tomorrow, August 20th, on Spotify and other podcast platforms. 
Ayana and Catherine Wilkinson are the co-editors of the anthology All We Can Save, out on September 22nd. You can pre-order it now at allwecansave.earth. This episode was produced by me, Michael Roberts, with support from Bonnie Tsui. Bonnie guided our first conversation with Ayana, and her profile of Ayana is in the upcoming September-October print issue of Outside Magazine, which includes an awesome photo of Ayana holding a chicken on her mom's farm. Get your copy by subscribing to Outside Magazine at outsideonline.com slash summerspecial, where we're offering a discount for a limited time. This episode of the Outside Podcast was brought to you by Hydroflask, makers of the new Trail Series bottle, which lets you go farther with less weight. Learn more about it and purchase yours at hydroflask.com slash trail series. We'll be back in two weeks.